Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. Today we have William Tunstall-Pedo, who I've known for several years as a Cambridge Angel, who did the same degree course actually as me, although probably 15 years more recently. So William, can you just describe a bit about your background, your education and your early career? I'm a Cambridge University computer scientist, if you want to start there. Born in London, high school in Dundee, been fanatically programming computers since I was 13. So my teenage years were spent writing computer software and selling it. And I did a computer science degree in Cambridge University. And I've always been interested in business, always been interested in writing more and more difficult computer software. Difficult computer software is a fairly good definition for what artificial intelligence is. So why didn't you do a PhD? So I looked at doing a PhD. I, I got a first. They offered me a place, but I couldn't think of a good reason for doing it. <laughs> so I didn't do a PhD. You did some normal jobs for a while and then decided to become an entrepreneur, did you? Or what's your thought process there? So I was always interested in business. So even when I was like a, you know, 12 or 13, I was actually looking at taking courses in business and doing stuff. And, and when I was at high school, my computer science teacher actually had a software business and I was actually working for him whilst I was a student at high school with him as the teacher in Scotland Scotland, Scotland, yes so the school got a small cut and I would sit in my breaks on lunchtimes and actually write software for his business and because he was on a slightly unsteady ground you know commercially exploiting the students I got a very big royalty you know he wasn't going to take a royalty rate that was anything that looked even vaguely unreasonable. What was the platform and language then? Uh, this was for Acorn Computers, BBC Micro and the Alchemides and, yeah, basic and assembler. Yeah. There was a technical college next to my high school which let students use their mainframe as well. So I was also going in there and programming there. So I've been doing commercial stuff with computer software essentially for 30-something years, or continuously for 30-something years. Mm. The entrepreneurial journey that was like a serious entrepreneurial journey involving large numbers of staff and venture capital started when I decided that I wanted to tackle something really big. I think that's a lesson there, that the depth of the tech is not necessarily related to the size of the problem that you're tackling. You can apply very deep tech to very trivial problems, but things get exciting when you try and tackle really, really big problems. So, okay, what was the premise initially? Because I didn't know you at that point when you, you formed the company. The premise was, you know, it was a world where computers understand natural language where you can just ask a computer, be understood, have the computer give back exactly what you've asked for. So, you know, why is it that we guess keywords and browse links when we do internet search? Mm. Why is it that most computer software involves creating a custom user interface with buttons and menu items, and the buttons and menu items are designed just to be what the software can do? You can't just ask the computer to do what you want it to do. You know, you have to learn a new user interface every time you start up an application. Mm. You know, surely... The most natural user interface is to interact with a computer just like you would a human being. So this is not, you know, my vision. If you look at science fiction, that's the way computers work. But unfortunately, there's enormous technical difficulties standing in the way. You know, when you're talking to someone or reading, uh, your brain is doing something absolutely magical to understand that. Right. And you don't appreciate quite how magical until you try and program a computer to do it. It's come a long way since then, of course. Um, Well, it's progressed. Yes. It's progressed slowly over decades. And yes, I think it's now crossed a magical point where I think this is what we prove in Amazon building Alexa, is it's now crossed this magical point where you can build a product that's useful enough 
to get daily usage, to get many tens of millions of people using it daily. And there was some innovation involved in that as well, but it's the continuation of a process that's been going for decades. So when was the year when you started what was then True Knowledge, wasn't it, I think? Or... So the core tech I was working on in 1999-2000. The official founding of True Knowledge was late 2005. So the dot-com crash put pay to my ambitions of kind of kicking it off. You know, what I had in 2001 was a patent application, a very, very crude prototype, which could kind of answer a few questions and took 45 seconds to do it. With a keyboard? With a keyboard, yeah. But the speech is just a layer that you add on. Yeah, sure. And the dot-com crash happened. I didn't quite have a business there either. I didn't quite know how to turn this tech into a business or what the business would be. What were you doing at that time? We just continued working for somebody else. I was doing some of my other projects. Earning money from those. Yeah. But in 2005, the markets had recovered. I'd filled in one of the missing pieces, which is how to populate the knowledge base that was needed for it. So part of the premise of this was instead of trying to understand natural language, which computers still can't really do, the idea was to invent a way of representing knowledge that computers could understand and reason with. But the gap I had in 2001 was how you build that knowledge base. And in 2005, I had some ideas about how to do that. So, you know, the business was started off with some friends and family money. Single founder? Yep. Yes, my business is a single founder business. So it started off with some friends and family money, a government grant. So we had a a budget of 125K for 12 months. That got me my first two employees. Sitting in the smallest office in the St. John's Innovation Centre in Cambridge, working on a, which basically took that very crude prototype and turned it into a better prototype. That better prototype got us an angel round. What was the vision? Well, family and friends don't need a vision, do they? They just trust and love you. So you said, yeah. I'm going to do something cool, and they put some money in. Yes. So, but you must have had a different story when you went for angel money. Well, what was hot in 2005 was internet search. So, you know, Google was, you know, sort of super, super hot company. Obviously, it still is. But, but it was search that was, that was really hot then. Uh, you know, innovation in search was considered to be the most valuable thing you could do in tech. So, you know, understanding natural language, there's a huge problem with search, which still exists, which is that the best that search engines can do is give you 10 blue links. They don't understand, you know, Google's index literally trillions of documents, but it doesn't understand what's in those documents. So the best it can do is, is rank the documents based on a statistical match between the keywords that you type, and then let you sort out which ones are of interest to you. And, you know, the premise... I had was surely a far better experience is to just ask for the information, just as I was saying, ask for the information that you want, have the computer understand you and give it straight back to you. Mm. Obviously, for voice, that's fundamental. You can't read <laughs> 10 blue links to you. Yes, <laughs> no. You speak to Alexa, she's got to give you the answer straight back. Yes. And mobile, of course, was also a trend that was against 10 blue links as well. The small screen on mobile, very difficult to do 10 blue links on a small screen. So 10 blue links only really works to the extent it works on a desktop computer with a big screen. And all the trends that have actually come in the last 10 years, uh, you know, voice and mobile, very, very much point towards direct answers. Having said that, you know, when I founded the business, there were people in Google who were ideologically opposed to anything other than 10 blue links. Yeah, because they wanted the choice to be made by the user and not by the software, presumably. Yeah, partly was philosophical stuff about there isn't an answer to a question. Partly it was about an aversion to selecting winners. Mm. But they are selecting winners by ranking. So that's not necessarily hugely persuasive. Uh, but having said that, Google's come along enormously in those, those in last those 10, 10 or 15 years. years. Yeah, they, they're yeah. now, you know, voice is now a, a huge priority for them. And so they are trying very hard to put a box at the top of the results 
as often as possible. And they even have their own content, which is absolutely huge. It's very, very rare, but the, you know, they have, if you type in certain medical conditions into Google, you get responses, you do. Uh, which are actually Google proprietary content. They aren't anywhere else on the web. Right. It's content that Google's created. So all of their kind of philosophical barriers that they had a while ago are starting to change. Because the market wants that. I think so. And I think the internal narrative inside these big companies is also changing as a result too. So you raised some money from angels here in Cambridge or? No. The angel round was from what's now Octopus Ventures. Octopus Ventures didn't actually exist when that round was done. It, it was the precursor business called Catalyst Ventures, which was a collection of high net worths who collaborated. There was an organization above them that did all of the negotiations and the deal terms. Uh, a club, really, was it? Or? Yeah. There was another organization called Pi Capital, which was the more famous version of them. Yes. But it was that model. So it was a very curated group of high net worths, but there was a very curated investment process by the organization. Well, can I ask why you did that not here? Because there was two angel groups here in Cambridge at that point. So I did pitch to Cambridge Angels, but I didn't get very far. So I had a couple of meetings with Robert Sampson. But yeah, they kind of faded away. But I then pitched to a group in Oxford, and then Catalyst found out about the opportunity via that. Right. And so how much did you raise then? That was 650K. Oh, that's quite a lot on a reasonable valuation then. I can't remember what the valuation was, but, but it was a reasonable valuation. Yeah, yeah. you didn't dilute too heavily no, yourself. No, no that's right. Okay. In those days, actually, that was a fairly big angel round. It was. And then whilst I was spending that money, Catalyst Ventures got acquired by Octopus Investments. And then very fortuitously, they were then controlling these VCT funds after the acquisition. So the follow-on could then come from the Titan Venture Capital Trusts. So we then raised a 2 million VC round. This was in, what, 07, 08? That was in 08. And then there were multiple rounds afterwards. So we were primarily backed by Octopus through the seven years that we were a startup, an independent startup. And so you were then recruiting and building a team. Yeah. How big did the team become? It was about 30 people at acquisition. Right, okay. And, you know, we pivoted several times. So, you know, Octopus were very, very good investors, very patient investors. The excitement of the tech remained. So I think that was what preserved us is we had this very, very big story and tech that provably move that story forward. So one could you actually demonstrate it quite easily yeah. on a keyboard? Yeah. Yes, that's right. We were always able to directly answer questions. We were always able to demo things that Google couldn't do that we could do. Really? There was an enormous amount of depth to the tech. It was heavily patented. It was validated in all sorts of ways. You know, we struggled. It took us several attempts to find a path for the business. So we started off with a standalone consumer website, trueknowledge.com, which was basically competing directly with Google. We had no UX or consumer skills whatsoever, but it was a very good technology demo. Exactly. But there was, so no, but there was, no, way, there was no way that we were ever going to have hundreds of millions of users with that yeah, site. Sure. You know, the next pivot was actually, you know, let's try and license the platform to what we call big search. So, you know, Google, Bing, Baidu, Yandex, Yahoo. And we had conversations with all of the big companies. We were talking to one of them for two years. We never quite closed a big, deal or got an acquisition. So no monetization at all at this point? We know we had we closed some smaller deals. So there were some smaller search engines that licensed our stuff. Yeah. And actually eventually when the sort of Siri clone started coming out, we were in quite a few of those. And in fact we were actually in Siri as well, the startup Siri. We had before Apple bought them. Before yeah. Apple bought them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the whole product was rewritten inside Apple. So we weren't in it anymore after they got acquired by Apple unfortunately, but we were a chunk of the experience of Siri startups. So the pivot after the platform for big search was, you know, we've had this frustrating two years trying to sell our technology directly into search. 
there's a easier way to get in, which is to actually just publish answers. So we had this SEO phase where we published literally tens of millions of Q&A pairs. Google indexed it, sent us traffic. We monetized that traffic with advertising. And that was actually pretty successful from a pure traffic point of view. We became one of the largest sites in the UK at one point. We had many, many millions of users and a 10% a week growth for the best part of a year. With advertising around the edges of the page or something? Well, all over the page, actually, not just at the edges. <laughs> totally. It was a really horrible experience, but you know, we were very good at SEO. Yes. And we had unlimited amounts of content because we could answer unlimited numbers of questions. Where did the questions come from? From your user base? Or did you create the questions? From our user base, from our logs, and we created questions as well. So you know, we had scripts that would ask a few million questions, related questions, and there would be a page. Uh, in fact, there was an infinite number of pages on the site because the pages were actually generated by the platform. Yes. So the URL was actually just an encoding of the question. But obviously, SEO requires actually pointing search engines at those you pages. You didn't get blacklisted or anything by anybody? <laughs> well, we eventually did fall foul of a Google algorithm change, which cost us 50% of our traffic. But we still had many, many millions of you know, monthly users after that. Yes. That's what killed off that pivot was the realization that we were at mercy of Google's algorithm. So you know, the final pivot was, let's just bet the company on our own consumer brand. Let's build our own mobile consumer experience, gain the UX skills that we've been lacking for all of these years, and just bet the business on a consumer product. Right. That was a very brave decision, but it was, it was essentially the last roll of the dice, and our investors backed us for this. But this is Octopus and anybody else? Or? This is Octopus. Just purely uh, Octopus still? Yeah, yeah. This was, this was essentially our kind of you know, big pivot. You know, we've been trying for a number of years. Everything's validated, but let's produce a consumer product. And that required team changes. You know, we didn't need so many web programmers. We needed UX and mobile skills. We had like an investor milestone based on getting to a kind of first version of this product. We had the team in lockdown, buying breakfast for the team, you know, buying dinner for the team, people working 24 hours stints to kind of, you know, get, hit this milestone. We hit the milestone. We got the validation that we needed. Part of the milestone was some external validation of the product as well. So, you know, is this something that was commercially interesting? Yes. Et cetera, et cetera. And we launched it in January 2012. And Apple had launched Siri in October 2011. So whilst we were developing this, we've been developing it since 2010. Yeah. Whilst we were doing that, Apple had launched the Siri product. And we then launched our product just weeks after Apple had launched Siri. Having literally the world's biggest company competing with you you might think is a really big problem, but actually it was enormously helpful for us. the market. Because Apple was busy investing millions to finding the space for us. Yeah. And we were positioned as Apple's main competitor. Yes. So, you know, we had a very, very busy year in 2012. When we launched, we had literally millions of downloads. We were number one in the Apple store. We had 40 big businesses you know, trying to talk to us or different divisions of the same. Their own usage, like a pharmaceutical company. They They were all trying to figure out their competitive response to Siri. Okay. And they wanted to talk to us for various reasons. One of those was Amazon. At the end of the year, when the dust settled, we had an acquisition offer from Amazon. We had an acquisition offer from another household name technology company. And we had a big financing round on the table. Did you have customers? Did you actually have any income from yes, this well, app Yes, so we did. So accidentally, there was a license fee that we had to pay for the Apple version. So the Apple version, we charged a nominal amount on the App Store just to cover the cost of this license. Yes. And then, of course, when we had millions of downloads, we actually ended up making serious revenue from that. Right. Uh, the Android version was free. Yes. So we accidentally made quite a lot of revenue that year as well. 
and yeah, we were also negotiating with big tech companies and we had big deals lined up. Yes. You know, we didn't proceed because we got acquired. Did you go through a process or did they just incoming offers, were they? Well, obviously, there was a process. There was, it wasn't like the first meeting. But you didn't go out to the market trying to sell yourselves? No, we didn't do that. So the other thing that happened that year is that as we'd found our successful pivot, this was my cue to hire an external CEO as well. So at that point, I'd been the CEO right up until the launch of EV. Yeah. And we brought in actually somebody I already knew, this guy called Barrett Berkowitz, who's the Silicon Valley executive. So a lot of what he was doing for the six months he was in the business was managing this massive funnel of interest from all of these big companies. Right. So there was a process in the sense that we were progressing a discussion with many tens of people. Can I just ask about that? Did you decide to bring in a CEO? Did the investors decide? Was it a process that you were happy with? It wasn't the investor saying, we've got to bring in a CEO. It was a discussion that had been going on for some time. Which you were okay with? Yes. I was definitely okay with it. And, I, and I, I like Barack a lot. I get on with him. And obviously, the investors want to see somebody that gets on well with the founder as well. And that was very useful, particularly useful when we were coming to sell, because he could stand in between me and the buyer and you know tread on their toes in a way that I would have been more problematic for me to do as I was going to be working for them afterwards. And you had a large proportion of the company as well. Yes, so that's right. So that was very helpful from a negotiation point of view. And you know, he didn't join Amazon. Yeah. So you know, his need to stay on good terms necessarily with the acquirer was less there. Did you generate a competitive process between Amazon and another or others? Yes, all of the people were aware of the interest. Yes. That didn't necessarily result in some of this crazy auction, but there was some competitive pressure. And, you know, having options always helps. So, you know, we also had this financing offer on the table too. From Octopus again? No, no, from another. Another VC, yeah. yeah. Another VC, yeah. So it had a big financing offer that was mm. new. Yes. So we could have chosen to stay independent. And the alternative acquisition offer we had would have resulted in half the team being relocated to Silicon Valley and the other half of the team laid off probably. Okay. And Amazon wanted to invest in Cambridge Yes. With the team doing broadly what it was already doing. Right. And that was a much more attractive offer. And it, well, with hindsight, it was absolutely the right choice. Yeah, exactly. They've been completely true to their word. You know, there's now, with vacancies, a thousand people in Cambridge all working for EV Technologies Limited. Well, they're working for the subsidiary, which essentially was my startup. Yeah. So, you know, the team's gone from 30 to, call it a thousand, with a few hundred years vacancies. Or four years. Yeah. Whatever it is. yeah. They invested very heavily in the space. Obviously, they didn't know that it was going to be that big. Yeah, yeah, but you know, the, obviously, the outcome, the, the successful, you know, the launch of Alexa and the Alexa has obviously been fantastically successful. So you closed uh, the deal in 2013 at some point, did you? It was closed in October 2012. Oh, really? So it all happened very rapidly in that year. Yep. So that Siri had come out in 11, and you closed in 12. Yeah. So we launched EV in January 2012, yes. and the deal closed with Amazon in October 2012. Okay. Before we go on to your relationship with Amazon, which continued for a while, can we just talk about the board that you had? at True Knowledge and Ivy, who else was on the board? It was you, other execs, some non-execs, no doubt. Yeah, so William Reeve was executive chairman for a long period of time. So Full-time exec? Or... Well, no, no, he was no one day a week. Okay. Oh, yeah. So he'd come and attend the management meeting, and in the early days, he was like a constant source of support And he'd me. come from Octopus or worked for Octopus? No, he was introduced by Octopus, but he was truly independent. So and he was an entrepreneur previously, was he? Yes, that's right. So, you know, Love Film... Uh, various other things. He's very much still a London entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. And he stayed right up until the EV pivot. And at that point, Simon Murdoch became our chairman. Right. Who, who, who was indeed working for Octopus. 
Right. So he was less independent, but he was very helpful in supporting the decision to to bet the business on a consumer product. Well, he had a consumer. Yes. He sold to Amazon yeah. anyway. Yes. Yes, that's right. Well, he didn't know we were going to sell to Amazon, of course. No, no. But that decision to bet the business on the EV product, to go all in on a consumer product, was the critical, successful decision. So he was very useful in getting behind that. I've interviewed him for the Investor Investor podcast. Yep. And he was incredibly useful. Well, it has been for many businesses and particularly for you. And this is all about the investor investor, the investor actually investing some time. Who else was on the board then? So there were various different representatives from Octopus Ventures that changed a lot. Alan Wallace was the key Octopus person. So he was the person that kind of spotted us when it was essentially a, we were a tiny three-person business and kind of continued to sort of help us for many years. So he was like the key Octopus person. But in subsequent years, there were others in Octopus who were our official rep. And any execs? John Brimacom. Oh, yeah, I know John. Yeah, yeah so John's a very old friend. He became a non-exec for us right. for a few years as well. So he was there right until the acquisition as well. Right, okay. So let's move on to what happened. So you, one day you're working for yourself, you're the entrepreneur. Next day you're working for a big American corporate. How yeah. was that transition? Interesting. So yes, that's exactly right. So I was running a 30-person company one day, and then I was an executive in what was then a 130,000-person company <laughs> straight afterwards. And Amazon is one perfect pyramid. It has Jeff Bezos at the top, and it has layers of management underneath going right down. It was 130,000 when I joined. It's now, I can't remember what the headcount of it is on Amazon. It's, it's much bigger than that now. It's 400,000, 500,000 now. I'm inventing that. It's published every quarter. But it's growing very quickly. Amazon's just it's an extraordinary business. It's growing its revenues 30% a year, year after year after year. Its headcount is also growing quite dramatically year after year after year as well. Having said that, I absolutely love Amazon. I think culturally, it was an extremely good fit for me, down to even the eccentric things in Amazon. So Amazon works with documents, for example. It doesn't work with PowerPoint. And some people find that difficult. But, you know, before Amazon acquired us, I was writing documents. You know, I find it easier to get my thoughts down in written form than I do in any other form, particularly if the thoughts are difficult or deep or whatever. So Amazon has a single-page document called the Leadership Principles, which defines what they consider to be best practice, best qualities of people that work there, defines the culture of the business. Again, I'm a huge fan of that as well. So yeah, I really enjoyed working for Amazon. I think it's an amazing business. And it's an amazingly successful business as well. So it was a very good fit culturally for me. It was also a very good fit culturally for the EV team. So the acquisition is considered to be an unambiguous success, you know, internally and externally. And part of that was the cultural fit. So a rather direct question, why did you leave? You know, if you're enjoying it so much. Uh, yeah, so I even wrote a six-page document about that. There's a, <laughs> a number of things came together. So I'd been there for three and a half years. My lockup had expired. That was obviously one reason. Mm. So the financial handcuffs they put on had gone off. Yeah. The big psychological one was the 10th anniversary of the business. So the 10th anniversary of the business was like just a few months before. And I realized I'd actually been doing this, doing EV, true knowledge, 120% for like a full decade. Mm. You know, do I want to do it for another decade or do I want to do something else? Mm. The other thing is I delivered everything I promised to do. So Alexa had been launched. It was a massive success. You know, the vision for the startup had essentially been delivered. The project was becoming huge as well. That was the other thing as well. Thousands of people, because it becomes, it'd been so successful, because, you know, money was being poured into it. Thousands of new people were joining the project. So, you know, when I joined, it was just the beginnings of a project, just the start. And then, you know, I'm in a project with thousands of people in it. It's just a completely different atmosphere. The ability to get things done or have impact uh, is diminished just because of the sheer volume of people. Right. 
And yeah, all of those things came together and it just was the perfect time to go. So William, we've got a culture you're really enjoying, an organization really enjoying, but you're also achieving something very special here. You've got a product that's going out and is now out in probably tens or even 100 million homes. Can you talk through that? Yeah, so when we were acquired by Amazon, we joined the very beginnings of what was a completely secret project, which was Echo Alexa, and it was totally secret, and we managed to keep it totally secret. When we eventually launched in late 2014, which was two years after the acquisition, it took everybody by surprise. We launched it very gently. We just put out a video, unceremoniously launched it. You actually had to apply to buy it. It was almost a closed beta. It wasn't called that, but essentially it was. You know, We were uncertain about the product in many ways, so we launched it very gently. And how many did you ship then, do you think? Just a few uh, thousand, I guess? Or? Yeah, I can't actually remember how many we shipped. It wasn't huge numbers. Yeah. But almost out of the gate, it was a success. We had very, very good reviews. People were blown away by it. I was embarrassed to say I was quite surprised by how well it was received because it still had lots of issues. Mm. And it still does have issues. All the technology is very, very difficult, so it's all imperfect. And it was particularly imperfect when we launched it in 2014. And it's been a surprise hit. It's just been amazingly successful. And every year I kind of have to realign my expectations to how successful it is. So, you know, when I first started talking about it, you know, people had not heard of it Mm. or some people had heard of it. Now I do speaking and, you know, I ask how many of the audience have heard of it. Everybody's heard of Alexa. 70% plus of the audience have used it. 50% plus have one or more devices in their homes. So it's become absolutely mainstream. I'm kind of used to seeing adverts on the side of buses, billboards, you know, adverts in the tube, advertising it, two Super Bowl ads. There's even, you know, Amazon's quarterly results that were published just last year had a big thing about Alexa being massively more successful than they thought and how they were going to be doubling down even on the huge amount they've already done. There are, of course, competitors now like Google Home and, of course, the Home Pod that came out in the last few weeks. Yes. So that's the consequence of the success is it's now become very strategic. So Google's produced what is essentially a copycat product, the Google Home, which is essentially an Echo with a slightly different shape and different colored LEDs. Different Uh, software, presumably. Yeah, different software, but essentially the same product. Siri has languished a little bit over the years, but Apple's produced their version, which is focusing on the quality of the speaker and focusing on music. And there's loads of other companies that are trying to do something similar. So it's become very, very strategic as well, which is very, very interesting to see. So you must be very proud of this. Yes, no, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of it. And, you know, I'm very, very proud of the role that the team and my startup had in terms of tech and talent. But also I'm very proud of what I contributed as a kind of senior member of the team. You know, I can see battles that I fought and won in the product inside Amazon. So I'm very, very proud of it. Yeah. And the core code is still written here in Cambridge, is it? There are Alexa teams all over the world now. There are a number of sites. Cambridge is one of the big sites, but it's one of several sites. And yeah, there's substantial engineering effort happening here in Cambridge for Alexa. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you for listening to part one of William Tunstall Pedo's Invested Investor podcast. It was fascinating to hear the story of Amazon Alexa. William has quite clearly broken through many barriers and successfully pivoted several times during his business journey with Evy Technologies. We hope you enjoyed William's podcast. Be sure to listen to part two. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online.
And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. investor.